Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. So uh, what have you been watching on the tube lately? Well, I am obsessed with Abbott Elementary and Andor and Stranger Things, and I can't wait for the new season of Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai! I would not have thought that, that would be a show for you. What I is it that you like about Cobra what is it, What's your deal with Cobra Kai? Oh my god, it's like it's it's like a show that's about the '80s. <laughs> so it's like a it's like a love hate watch, you know. Well, guess what? What? All that fun is about to be over because every show you named is on pause because the Writers Guild of America, which represents writers who work in TV, radio, and film, went on strike at 12.01 on May 2nd. Oh, God, that's right. That means that so a number of past guests and friends of the show are on strike. Uh, Emily Halpern, Dean Bacopolis, Shanti Sikaran, Victor Laval. And, of course, Ben Percy who has agreed to join us to explain what's what with this situation. Ben is the author of three collections of short stories and six novels, including Red Moon, The Wilding, The Ninth Metal, and The Unfamiliar Garden. The latter two are the first two books in his Comet Cycle. The third, Sky Vault, comes out in September. Grey Wolf published his craft book, Thrill Me, Essays in fic- on Fiction, in 2016. He has written for both DC and Marvel comics about characters like Batman and Wolverine, and of course, he's a screenwriter. A film he co-wrote, Summering, came out last summer, and he's got others in the works. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, like Sugi, you live in Minnesota, and that means that in this situation, you're kind of like the one guy on the picket line. <laughs> I don't know. There's actually probably a fair number of screenwriters in Minnesota, and we're just being dicks about it. Um, uh, but you've been a WGA member since 2014, and you have several projects in the pipeline, including Urban Cowboy at Paramount Plus, a feature at Paramount Pictures, and an adaptation of your novel, The Ninth Metal, for Sony, among others. Congratulations on all those things, by the way. Hey, thanks. Can you tell our listeners how the WGA came to be? It's a big question. Yeah, I mean, I am not Wikipedia, but I can give you like a general overview in that you know, early this 90- podcast is for people who disdain Wikipedia, but so you can just read right from the entry. <laughs> I think you know it's early ni- early twentieth century. It came to be, and the idea behind the WGA is that it negotiates bargaining agreements with studios, and those negotiations include wages, benefits, working conditions. Uh, they also have a pension and health insurance plan. They have legal services. 
Um, they protect and support writers, and they also provide opportunities for professional connections. Um, but yeah, they are uh, a collective power uh, for a freelance uh, lifestyle. I guess I'm wondering, before I was a writer, when I heard the term um, Writers Guild of America, I would have assumed that the Writers Guild of America would have included novelists who did not write for television. <laughs> That would be nice. Um, I think the Authors Guild might offer some of those protections, but only for a very limited geography, like maybe just New York, New Jersey. I see. So, But, like, it's much more powerful than the Writers Guild. And, in fact, it's one of the more powerful unions in America. I always think about this. Like, why is it that, like, the two power, most powerful unions I know of are, like, the baseball, Major League Baseball Players Association and, like, and the Writers Guild, you know, like, but I wonder if it's because those, I feel like it's maybe because those jobs are actually fairly highly remunerated. And so the people who are in them have the power and financial wherewithal to strike. Unlike maybe, you know, somebody working at McDonald's. Is that crazy? You know, to compare us to professional baseball players, I, <laughs> I, I would never put us on the same shelf. Uh, I think that you hear about the writers' union maybe a little bit more because you're tuned in uh, to literary land. Uh, I don't know that, mm -hmm. that others would feel the same way. But we are very good about, you know, making noise uh, and, and getting attention. So we're probably able to sneak into the headlines a little bit more so because of that. Yeah, I mean, people people certainly care about this strike. And um, I guess the other thing that I would maybe mention slash ask about um, or that I learned while I was kind of preparing for this episode is that the WGA is comprised of really two unions, the WGA East, just sort of like the New York scene and That's the right. WGA West, which is kind of the L.A. scene and that they like agree on stuff. It's split right down the middle of the country. The Mississippi is the dividing line. Uh, I was going to um, ask which one you so. were in. That's why I'm in WGA West, ah. yeah, being in Minnesota. And the WGA is ne negotiating with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And who's included in that? I like was doing a little reading, but... So there are 11,500 writers in the WGA. Huge. As for the AMPTP, I'm not sure how many people this consists of, but it's 350 companies. TV and film production companies. And so that uh, so, includes folks like Netflix, for example. Yeah, like streaming services like Netflix, Apple Plus, uh, Prime, it's broadcast networks like CBS, Fox, NBC, ABC. It's, you know, movie studios like Paramount and Sony and Universal, Disney and Warner Brothers. Okay, so there's our, like, setup of the table the, uh, of terms and players, you know. This is the first time in 15 years that the WGA has been on strike. Last time in 2007, streaming services like Netflix, Disney Plus, and Apple TV barely existed or were not nearly as important as they are now. Uh, and the WGA's central demand was for better pay. The same is true today. Writers want better compensation. But now a lot of that demand is tied to the existence of streaming, which has totally changed the landscape of television and film. So could you talk about what the G... WGA's demands are here, especially in relationship to streaming services? Yeah, I mean, there's the broad basic way to talk about this, which is the wealth is concentrated at the top, right? And people aren't being compensated properly. Um, and that's a very American story. Um, so to give you some particular examples that underscore that, let's say in the olden days, and the olden days are actually not that long ago, uh, you had a movie come out. 
You wrote a feature. It was at the multiplex. Every ticket that was sold, right, that money would find its way back to you. And the same could be said about DVD sales, right? Well, now, what if you're writing a movie for Netflix, for Hulu, for Prime? It never shows up in the theater, and residuals as a result don't really exist anymore. Uh, The same could be said of a television series. Let's say you wrote an episode of Friends or an episode of MASH or Kung Fu The Legend Continues or whatever. Uh, That would air, right, on NBC. And then maybe there'd be a rerun and then another rerun. And then maybe it would get picked up by the USA Network or TBS in syndication. Well, every single time that that happened, there would be compensation. There would be residuals. Let's say right now you write something that appears directly onto Netflix or Hulu. 500 million people could watch that and it would make no difference. You would have been paid. You're not making any more money. It doesn't add up. There's no math uh, involved in this situation. You know, all of the benefits belong to the streamers and uh, to the talent that's creating the shows. So wait, but, you, but they get paid something, right? They're so, paid I mean, up front like, one time, right? Yeah, and you're then paid that's up front, The problem sure. is that you don't get this other payments for when it airs again on a different network or something else happens or goes into syndication. What a fam- fabulous, wonderful old word that we don't talk about anymore. Yeah, I mean, I was there was an Abbott Elementary writer who was interviewed the other day, and she was talking about how, you know, if, you, if there was a replay, if there was a rerun on network TV, it would have amounted to something like, I think it was $17,000, but the only residual check that she would have received uh, when it pops onto the streaming platform would be $700. That's outrageous. So you would get it if they replayed and like they said, okay, we're going to show this again in the summer or whatever, you'd get paid again, right? But Netflix, it's one time and then it's like they can show it whenever they want. They don't have to have a rerun fee or any of that sort of stuff. And it's not just about... uh, you know, people being to, being able to earn throughout their life or being compensated for the work that they've done. It's about the erratic nature of a writer's life and that oftentimes, especially if you're writing for Hollywood, there are long dry spells between gigs. And as a result of that, these residuals would sort of carry you through. And now people, you know, might not be able to pay their rent. Uh, I know that sounds... Uh, maybe a little ridiculous to some who are tuning into this, but it's very true. And it has to do too with the way that earning works in general. I mean, let's say you made a big chunk of money uh, just to give us a flat fee. Let's say it's $100,000 that you earned for a feature. That's, you know, uh, a very nice check, most people would say. But it's not just the taxes that come off of it. It's the management fees. It's the agency fees. It's the lawyer fees. All of these people need to be involved to close a deal in Hollywood. You're probably going to see, at the end of the day, $40,000. Oh, my God. Of that $100,000. So... I'm not, I'm not exaggerating the slightest when I say no, that. No, I'm sure you're not. I mean, so also to kind of put some other numbers on this, back in my youth, long ago... Right. A a TV season would often be 22 episodes and streaming seasons are often eight to 10. Um, So it's also fewer episodes. And then the other thing that I understand from reading about this is that there's very little transparency. Like 
there used to be like one of the ways in which there would be a rerun would be if there were like a mid-season hiatus, right? And then they would actually rerun an episode from earlier in the season. And then syndication is something even past that, like essentially like the Law and Order channel, which sort of exists. Um, and it's not just about those reruns, but you just said something really important. These episodes are now eight episodes. These seasons are now eight episodes. There's six episodes. It used to be that you could rely on a show to sort of, that's that's your year, right? Right. That's your that's your employment. You're taken care of uh, throughout the calendar year. Now you're looking for a new job every ten weeks. Right, right. And so before it was like the breaks would be it would almost be like an academic year. Like you would wait, you know, like a little kid, you'd, the season four premiere of the X Files, and you'd be like, ah, it's Fox, it's September, I'm excited. Right. And you also knew when the reruns were on. But the other thing about these streaming services is that, that they're keeping tallies of how much we're watching stuff. Like if I click... But they're not sharing right, that information. Right, So like there's no transparency, which, so you don't even... Well, is that part of the negotiation? Are they, are, is the Writers Guild asking for those numbers? There's a lot on the table and I can't speak to, you know, the granular uh-huh. takeaways of all this, but okay. more transparency is absolutely something that people are asking for. And again, it has to do with like, let's say... 100 million people watch your show. Like, there should be compensation for that. But we nobody knows what the numbers are. You know, you'll get, like, abstract data, like, this was the number one show on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And that's all you know. So have there been ideas or conceptions? I understand you're not, you know, there in the room doing negotiating and all this is fluid and it's all being proposed now. But have there been concepts floated that might solve this problem, you know, theoretically, you know, to replace the, the, the income that would have come from syndication and from multiple episodes and all that sort of stuff. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I mean, there's a lot to tackle here, and I am not part of the negotiating board, but I, it, what I think that I can say on behalf of most writers is that uh, we're not alone in this, and SAG is up for a renewal, the Actors' Union, and... Uh, the DGA, the director's union, is also up for renewal. And everybody's concerns are similar. You know, the residual argument that I just put forward applies to them as well. And 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 it's not just that. It's the concern over, you know, the brevity of a season, you know, and that an actor's employment or a director's em- employment window is much briefer. And it also has to do with AI, which I'm sure we're going to talk about soon. We are. Um, and I was also going to wait until later to bring this up, but I just want to let our listeners know that um, if you want to get really granular, there has been this chart going around social media that is about the negotiations. And on the left-hand side of the chart, you can see the WGA proposals. And on the right-hand side of the chart, you can see yeah. the AMPTP offers in response. So for example, streaming, the question that Whitney just asked, um, so the WGA proposed that streaming features um, with a budget of 12 million or more receive full theatrical terms, including better initial compensation, so a, a better upfront fee and residuals. And the AMPTP said that 
made for streaming video on demand programs that are 96 minutes or longer with a budget of 40 million or more receive a 9% increase to initial compensation. And there is no improvement in residuals. That's their response. So it's a shitty response. Um, No, if you you look at that chart, I would recommend it. Uh, it's It's a nice bit of comedy writing, actually, because... There are all these requests on the left, the left-hand column, and on the right-hand column, the responses are rejected, rejected, rejected. Yeah. So we're going to get to that too. But first, I want to ask about one of the other things that the WGA is asking about. So shows written for streaming services use writers' rooms, um, and TV shows have generally used writers' rooms, and and that is like a writers' room that's meeting kind of during the season while the show is in production. But another WGA demand has to do with so-called mini rooms which are small groups of writers assembled before show production starts. Now, this seems to me like it's like a comparatively new thing. And according to the studios, they're like maybe not officially writers' rooms. And then on the WGA site, there's like a, a whole thing about how they really are writers' rooms and that you should defend yourself as a writer if you signed up for one of these. How did mini rooms become a thing? I mean, I feel like there's just a thousand different ways that producers are sometimes trying to take advantage of writers. Um, Many rooms aside, like here's an example of that. Let's say you have uh, a two or three step deal where you're, you know, you've commenced a script and then you're handing in the outline and then you're handing in the draft and then you're doing a rewrite and then maybe you're doing a polish or whatever. Like for every one of those steps, right, you're supposedly getting paid. But there are all of these uh, conversations that happen on the side where it's like, okay, before we hand it in to Sony, or before we hand it in to Netflix, let's just talk amongst ourselves. And we're going to ask you to do this rewrite and this other rewrite and this other rewrite and this other rewrite before we actually hand it in officially to get the next step, right? And so sometimes this can account for three months of work, which you're not being paid for. Um, so there's just one example, but sliding back to your question about mini rooms, it's kind of a question in tandem with what I was just discussing because you know, it's another example of taking advantage of people. Uh, instead of having the seven, eight, nine, ten people that we part of a writer's room breaking a season, instead you hire two people or three people to break a season. And they're doing this on an accelerated time frame. And they're figuring out, probably the pilot's already been written, but they're figuring out the next two episodes. They're fi- figuring out the arc of the season And there is no guarantee after those maybe eight weeks or 10 weeks that anybody in this room is going to continue on the show or have really any ownership over the show. And it's also a lot less likely that new writers will be included in these mini rooms, right? So it makes it a little bit harder for people to break in who haven't been a part of the industry. They're probably just going to get mid-career writers or established writers, and they're going to pay them minimums the minimum fees to have these mini rooms. And based on the mini room, they'll decide whether they want to actually shoot the show. So a lot of mini rooms, like it just dissolves and nothing happens afterwards. So this is all before a show it's is like cre- doing free work. And then you don't, you don't know whether what's going to happen. Right. Basically. So it's like, we used like to- working for a startup. Go ahead. No, just like, it sounds like working for a startup because what you're describing is before the show is greenlit. Yes, Exactly. Well, I've never worked for a startup, but I did work on a boat, fishing boats in Alaska. And what we would have to do is go up there, not unionized, by the way, and, and like fix up the skipper's boat and fix the net for free in order to go fishing. 
right? And so if you got up there and suddenly the skipper decided that he wanted to redo his entire refrigeration system and fix the hydraulics for the whole boat, you could either like walk off or just fucking do it so that you could finally get fishing to make money. I mean, it's like that. It's very, that sounds like a very abusive system. I mean, everybody's hopeful that their show will go, but most don't. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. All right, so uh, here's the AI part we were talking about. We did this uh, an episode recently with uh, Pulitzer finalist Wahini Vara, who t- used AI to write nonfiction. Uh, WGA is concerned about AI and wants to regulate how it's used on projects covered by their contract. That includes prohibiting AI from writing or rewriting literary material, and pro- <laughs> I'm scary, and prohibiting AI from using material protected under the contract as source or training material. So the movie producers in that whole, their, whatever their acronym is, AMPTP, rejected this and countered by offering, quote, annual meetings to discuss advancements in technology, which is part of the comedy <laughs> thing that you're talking about. So ridiculous. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit more about this concern and, and its reality? And, yeah, and, sure. And, I mean, yeah. right now people are looking at chat GPT and saying, oh, look how incompetent it is. Uh, but... By dismissing a program like that, you know, you're essentially looking at a Model T and failing to imagine a Lamborghini. Uh, this thing is going to get smarter and smarter and smarter. Uh, it's a it's a plagiarist and it's be- going to become a lot more savvy and smart as time goes by, because what they're doing is they're feeding these machines. They're feeding them art. They're feeding them voices. Uh, they're feeding them writing. You might have heard about some of the voice actors, right? I'm talking about how this, these concerns that we're bringing up are not unique to writers. So let's say you're a voice actor. Uh, right now, contracts exist where they bring the voice actor in for a day, they record, and then they say, you're good, we're done. Oh my God. And, and, and so extend that to uh, an actor who's in front of the screen, right? Um, are we going to be seeing Humphrey Bogart starring in a film in five years or Marilyn Monroe? Um, you know, could you potentially study a directing style, you know, uh, of Tarantino or Spielberg and try to replicate that? I'm giving you, you know, unique examples with Tarantino and Spielberg. But let's say, you know, we're talking about the latest Transformers or Fast and the Furious movie, you know, the more the McDonaldization of cinema. It's a little bit more, maybe easy to wrap your head around then. Let's take an example of a show like Law and Order. Love Law and Order, right? But it's incredibly formulaic. And there are a lot of episodes to draw from. So let's say you pump all those Law and Order episodes into the machine. It would be able to probably come up with a decent replication of a standard episode. Not perfect right now, obviously, because this stuff is still developing. But all they have to do is then hand it over to a writer and say, punch this up a little, you know, spruce it up, polish it up. As a result of that, the writer is paid a minimum for a rewrite or polish and doesn't have any ownership over the episode at all. Right. So I feel like AI should definitely be able to handle all the CSI franchise. (laughs) We open up with a dead body. (laughs) I feel like we have to mention here that Carmen Bria Machado's extraordinary Law & Order story, the Law & Order SVU story, 
could never be produced by AI. There's no way. I just refuse to to think that that's possible. But um, yeah, I mean, like, look at what the mind of an individual writer can come up with and like, imagine, yeah, like if you ask ChatGPT to write a story that, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe this is wishful thinking that I, I think that it's, I want to think it's impossible. But you just look at what, what is dominating the cinema, right? We're not talking about scripts by Charlie Kaufman. No. You know, we're we're talking about big tentpole popcorn movies. That's true. And and they rely you know, they rely on formula already. Yeah, earlier t- And places like Netflix are incredibly algorithm driven when it comes to their programming, right? So they are really excited about these the possibilities of AI. Oh god. Yeah, I mean, um, earlier today, I'm a fan of Keanu Reeves, and Instagram apparently knows this, and I was watching reels, and, like, it fed me a reel that was Keanu Reeves, and I was sure it was actually Keanu Reeves, and then I, like, read the caption, and it was AI Keanu Reeves, and I could not tell. Yeah, scary. It was yeah. actually horrifying. And, and I mean, writers are not Luddites. We, we understand that AI is here to stay. All we're asking for are regulations, you know, some guardrails. To be put up and to be outright denied the, even the possibility of such. I mean, that's that's jarring and slightly terrifying. So we have been talking about this this funny, not funny chart. Um, and there is a pretty big gap between what the WGA wants and what the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers has offered. And this chart, um, which, again, we'll link to in the show notes, there are several places where the answers read just rejected our proposal, refused to make a counter. And the studios offered meetings not only to talk about future developments in technology, but also to, and I'm quoting here, educate creative executives and producers about screenwriters' free work concerns. Um, That did not fill me with optimism because these negotiations are meetings to discuss writers' concerns about free work. And I'm curious, like, how long you think the strike is going to last? I mean, nobody knows the future except Miss Cleo. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. There's there's the optimists out there who say, okay, SAG is up for renewal, DGA is up for renewal. They're gonna unite in this Voltron kind of way and grind the industry to a halt, and we'll move on. Right? That they'll they and TPT will have no choice except to. Uh, bend the knee on certain issues. Um, but then there are the people who are deeply pessimistic and they say, okay, uh, some of these companies have a lot, you know, in the tank. They've already shot a bunch of shows. Uh, they can wait this out. Uh, they also, you know, can draw upon international markets. They can have uh, more South Korean shows on, more Norwegian crime thrillers uh, Mexican telenovelas uh, to fill to fill those gaps, um, and they also can potentially save money for a while. There's discussion about you know some force majeure situations where they can cancel overall deals with people I saw that. who you know might have contracts in the ten million, twenty million, forty million dollar range. So we'll see. Uh, the most hopeful among us say by the end of summer. Uh, the most pessimistic among us say 
six months, nine months. I was reading, yeah, I was reading about the last two strikes, which of course were 1988 and 2007. And I think the 1988 one was like 153 days and the other one was like 100 something. And so this maybe has the potential to be like really at least up there with that and maybe longer. Yeah, especially because the DGA and and SAG are now involved. This is... This is an industry-shaking moment. So I think we we definitely want to talk about um, the relationship between your fiction writing, which we have talked about on this show before, um, and your screenwriting, which we haven't had a chance to talk about on this show. Um, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about Summering, uh, the movie that you co-wrote that came out last summer, and then we'll listen to a little bit of the trailer. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been working on shows. I've been working on features probably since 2010 or so. Um, But it's never really been my focus until the past probably three or four years. It's just taken up more and more time at the desk. Um, Summering was one of those projects that that popped up uh, after James Ponsult, uh, the director, writer, a buddy of mine that I actually met in 2003. We were roommates together at the Suwannee Writers Conference. you know, we were we were talking about our kids and um, our daughters in particular. Um, Madeline, my daughter, there'd been a few different occasions where I'd been in a comic book shop and she'd come up to me with a sour expression and said, you know, where are all the girl heroes? Uh, or here I am, this nerdy dad wanting to show her all of these movies that I was obsessed with as a kid, like Stand By Me. Uh, and she's like, it was great, Dad, but where are all the girls? Uh, or I read her The Hobbit out loud, and she's like, great, Dad, but I don't think there was a single girl in the entire book. And she was right. There's one <laughs> There's one pronoun. That's it. There's one, there's one she that, that pops up and disappears. Um, and anyways, um, you know, we, we put our thinking caps on, and we started to brainstorm and we developed uh, a story that was dedicated to each of our daughters you know right at the end of the film you'll see it in the credits dedicated to Madeline and Alice um, and and so we were t- taking some of those stories from from our youth that we that we love so much and putting them through this revisionist blender um, and you know it takes place in the last week of summer before middle school begins so it's an age of transition and uh, they've come across a dead body and have to solve the mystery of what happened to him. All right, we're going to listen to a little bit of that trailer um, and then keep talking. So here's what the trailer for that movie sounds like. Every step you take, you're moving forward a moment in time. But what if, for every step you take backwards, you move backwards in time? I'm 11. A number that looks like two people standing next to each other. This is our last weekend before middle school. I want to go backwards, not forward. One is the person you used to be, and the other one is the person you're becoming. We'll have to go back like two months. Then we can have somewhere all over again. And the older I am, the more complicated my life gets. That can't be real. Of course it's real. He's dead. 
we make a pact to try and find out who he was. This is on us. Daisy say something to you. You can't not look for someone who's gone. Someone is waiting for this guy to come home. That was so. It's very cool. I, I, first of all, this is a question. Like, what is it like to hear stuff you've written uh, on screen? You know, the first time you see it after it's been filmed. You know, have you been dealing with it on the page for so long and imagining it in your head, and then finally it happens to become a real thing? What is that like? Pretty extraordinary. Uh, as was being on set. Um, you know, James is a good buddy of mine. He's very generous. He invited me onto set every single day. I was rewriting dialogue uh we were playing around with the script um you know ob observing how a movie's made completely changed my understanding of narrative uh and just the collective storytelling that takes place there's so many people on a set there are so many it's a it's its own ecosystem uh uh, uh there's there's the guy schlepping uh wires around and plugging them in there's the person working the sound there's the lighting technician there's somebody who's dumping water during a rainstorm there's the actors of course there's the director of course there's a cinematographer of course but there's so many dudes in cargo shorts <laughs> surrounding all of them um and and yeah just comprehending how much things cost um if you want to have like your characters walk down a street and have a conversation you're gonna have to rent out that street and you're gonna have to pay every business on that block the amount of money that they would have made during the hours lost. And you're going to have to bring the police in to direct traffic, right? So that scene suddenly costs $15,000. Uh, uh, or let's say you want to have a rainstorm and it's a drought. <laughs> you know, you have to bring in the rain machines. And in this one scene, we had um, an arroyo that was full of water and the water was pouring down it. And so we had four 10,000-gallon tanks and we had four opportunities to make that shot happen and that water cost a lot of money so four opportunities that's it that's fascinating for the staging of the scene well there's so. one difference between fiction writing and screenwriting is that you don't have to rent the scenery right. when you're doing fiction I, uh, unlimited special what effects else budget did, in fiction. <laughs> what else was different in moving from fiction writing to screenwriting you said that your fiction writing it was your understanding of narrative was changed by being on the movie set could you talk a little bit about more that Specifically, and did you like study screenwriting to get started, or did you just kind of like start doing it? I've, I've been know, a giant movie example. nerd my whole life. Uh, you know, I've always watched films and then rewatched them, and then rewatched them again with the director's commentary on and read screenplays. So I felt like I was sort of ready made for screenwriting. I I picked up you know story by Robert McKee. I I picked up Save the Cat. I picked up. Uh, Sid Field's screenwriting. I, I read some craft books, but uh, just looking at screenplays is uh, an education of its own. But, you know, the thing about a screenplay, if you have looked at one, you, there's a lot of white space, right? And that white space is filled in by all of the talent. You know, all the different people involved in this film are uh, strenuously trying to tell the best story possible. And you're just one part of that, the foundation of that as the writer. So allowing yourself to sort of step back and not control everything, you know, the way in which uh, an actor might be scrunching up their face when they hear a line of dialogue, 
the way uh, a certain character might be dressed. Like all of those things that as a fiction writer, you're going to shove onto the page because you're creating the whole world. You, you'll actually have a screenplay that's 300 pages long if you try that. Um, so there's also, you know, the, the, the limitations, the constraints of screenwriting in that you have 90 pages, let's say, or 100 pages. You don't have 600. So you have to very efficiently uh, move your way forward. And certain things have to happen at certain junctures. At minute 15, the inciting incident has to happen. At minute 25, the, uh, it, you know, the first doorway moment occurs. The, fir- the, the juncture between the first act and the second act. At page 50, the midpoint reversal has to happen. You know, I'm being very specific here, but it's, it could be page 13. It could be page 17, but it's right there on the mark. Um, so writing comics has also taught me this and that I have 20 pages of when I'm writing a comic. Uh, I don't have 22. I don't have 18. I have 20. There's five to seven scenes. There's an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot, and so on. So sometimes these constraints can feel prohibitive, but they're, they're actually inspiring, I think, in the same way that a villanelle or a sonnet might be. So Ben, I feel like we've asked a lot of people on this show, um, you know, what are their favorite novels or but I don't know that we've ever asked anyone like about a formative screenplay. And I wonder if like, if you were going to tell our listeners like one, two, three screenplays that you feel like are the ones that you should pick up and read, what are the ones oh, on your yeah, shelf? Yeah. You know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of screenplays out there that feel like they could have been written by anyone. Um, those aren't the ones that I enjoy. I, I, I want a screenplay to read, I don't know, almost like clipped poetry. I want there to be a personality and rhythm to it. I want it to have that unique flavor. Um, I think you see that in Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, vampire film. No. Starring, she's the Hurt Locker person, um, right? Yeah, she's the Hurt Locker person. Okay. Yeah, she, but she started off, you know, making, making vampire movies, vampires in an RV going across uh, desert wasteland. Um, and, and heading into bars and taking out everybody, um, you know, within a hundred yards, uh, in a bloodbath. It's, it's like, it's a fantastically gritty, poetic screenplay. Um, you know, Chinatown is one of the more famous ones, you know, anything written by William, uh, jeez, I'm having a brain moment. Golding. Golding, not Goldman. Um, and it, no, wait. Goldman, Goldblin, Lord of the Flies versus... Golding is Lord of the Flies. There, that's what I <laughs> said Goldman, it wrong. Goldman is, right. Goldman is yeah. the Princess Bride. I'm a dummy. <laughs> right, so if you look at uh, All the President's Men or Princess Bride, like that, that guy can write. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, I mean, you, obviously people like Quentin Tarantino, they have so much personality to their screenplays. But if you go to a place like Drew's Scriptorama, all these scripts are available for free online. You can just download them as PDFs. And it's really interesting uh, to see how much is not on the page sometimes. I tend to overwrite. I tend to, you know, do my annoying novelist thing. And, and as a result of that, you know, my screenplays are oftentimes referred to as compelling, but not breezy enough. I see. They want them to be breezier. <laughs> but did your daughter like summering? Well, how could she not like it? Um, That's right. Even if she hated it, she, we, I'm sure I she wouldn't it. have told me. <laughs> well, 
Well, but yeah, she was, she was, she was pretty thrilled to be able to go to the premiere and, you know, we, we had a big party, had a photographer and everything else. And it was a special moment to share with her. That's a really cool backstory for how you, for how you came to work on it. Um, and for our listeners, we will link to the trailer for Summering so that you can see the visuals also, and they're lovely. Um, and while you are waiting for the strike to end, you can read Ben's incredible body of work, which, as you know, includes screenplays, um, podcasts, comics, and, of course, novels. And don't forget to pre-order The Sky Vault, which will be out in September. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. It's been fun. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!